0: This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. All right, Kev, another
1: wonderful podcast here. And jumping into this replay, we have a job we're going to be starting very soon. And it's been a long time in the waiting. She's very patient. We have Courtney on the air right now, and she's going to be talking about her kitchen and bathroom we're going to be redoing. It's going to be a smaller job. It's going to be inside the envelope of what she's having. We're not blowing out walls. So you're not
0: doing anything in either room?
1: No, this is a good one because it's not as big a job that we've been doing. So no course, structural stuff. No, no, right. no, not at all. Cordy, thanks for doing this. And uh, thanks for talking about some of the things uh, you went through to, to get to this point already. And uh, why don't we jump into your kitchen and bath and one of the reasons of why are you doing this?
2: Sure, Kevin. Thanks so much. We're Definitely very excited to uh, finally have our turn on the list here. And we essentially are redoing the kitchen because we're trying to increase the functionality as well as just to bring some updates to the home, give it a little bit of our style. We've lived there for about five years now, so Mm -hmm. just trying to put our own personal stamp on it. I think the other thing we're doing is we're expanding our kitchen out into an open area of the house that became wasted when the prior homeowner put an addition and moved what was the family room to a different area in the house so we're trying to utilize that space for entertaining and as far as our bathroom I mean essentially that's our upstairs bathroom which our guests and our kids use and it really just needs a refresh that's kind of the backstory of why we're doing what we're doing
0: so you're expanding but you're really not moving any walls or anything to do that
2: correct yeah we have a pretty good layout we just needed to functionalize it better
0: okay all right.
1: Yeah, a lot of times when they – it's a large kitchen right now, and instead of taking so much space up, uh, in smaller kitchens, this kitchen having that depth, the length of it there, uh, what we're doing is putting a larger island in okay. to make it more user-friendly. for. Large
0: islands are, are like – the way to go today right a lot of people are doing that
1: i every job has been a massive island that we're putting in because it's much more user-friendly and mm-hmm. that's the whole thing with the kitchen if you're going to do it and you're doing it once why not make it user-friendly from the beginning so your wishes are accommodated yeah do you entertain or are you planning on entertaining a lot more now that, uh, that when the new kitchen goes in
2: yeah, I mean, I'd say we entertain a fair bit, but I'll tell you, I'm most looking forward to my annual Super Bowl party with my brand new kitchen and entertaining area. And, you know, you mentioned the large island, which is certainly one thing. But, you know, one of the other things that we're doing with this project as we expand in our open space is, you know, throwing a wet bar on our far wall, but putting a giant quartz table kind of out into our unusable space, which will be kind of at a counter height and make it, I think, a really great gathering area.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Was that a development house? Did you buy it new?
2: No, our house is probably about 1994 build, and okay. the addition I spoke about was put on in 2004. So we bought in January of 2016.
0: All right. It's interesting though when people are in, and I have, I feel the same way. Once you start living in a house and moving around the house and doing the things that you're going to do with a house, like entertain, okay, you want to change certain things. Certain things just don't sit right with you from the time that you bought right. it till the time that you really get to use it so that's exactly what you're doing that's, that's the reason for your uh, renovation now correct
2: yeah absolutely
0: okay yeah it makes it your home now makes it your home yeah absolutely Since whether what? you buy a development home or you buy a house that uh you know was built years ago or you buy a victorian whatever it is you it, it your home
1: it does yeah. it does now walk us through some of the colors you chose for the the cabinets and colors on the uh, walls that we're going to be doing in the countertop
2: so I mean, we went with kind of a white and a, mm, I'm going to call it like a maritime blue type of color. So most of our outer cabinets are all going to be white. Island will be blue. The elements over by that table kind of I just described will be blue. And then on the far wall, we'll have the blue for our bar. And then, uh, you know, we kind of went with a lighter, less busy quartz white-based countertop with some fun kind of black and gray and a little bit of sparkle swirl in the, uh, counters and then the, uh, bar will have just a really simple black quartz.
1: Now, did you pick all this color there? or was that Brian involved too?
2: I'm going to say Brian was involved slightly actually. I'm surprised we did it together, but that is the nice thing about our marriage is it tends to, uh, tends to be good on the, what we both like in terms of our style. So that part's usually pretty easy.
1: Yeah. You just find when, when I talk to people about that, they always say that, uh, yeah, they're, they have a little bit of an argument because somebody wants one thing and somebody else wants something else. And it makes it a little difficult because this is a one-time decision. I mean, you're going to get this kitchen. It's going to last for 40 years.
0: Oh, yeah. You don't want to make any mistakes. It's not like you're putting pink or but it's yellow green It's in. fortunate that you agree on, on, uh, on the, uh, the aesthetic of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was certainly the most stressful part because there's so many options. From that perspective, that was probably the most difficult part was narrowing it down. And fortunately, Kevin sent us to work with great people who had really good assistance for us in terms of helping us out with the style component of that.
0: What's the style of the cabinet?
2: Kevin can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's just a basic shaker style.
0: Shaker style. Yeah. I like, I like simple. I like plain, you know, straight lines, all that stuff instead of all the rococo stuff. And apparently you do too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Pretty simple. And then we're just doing simple, fresh nickel, very stylish contemporary type pulls on our drawers.
0: Uh,
1: How are you going to stain them or paint them? Well, the cabinets are already painted white
2: the cabinets uh, are painted white Oh, they're painted they're they're white.
1: Painted
0: oh, okay, so they yeah. came that way. Okay.
1: Yeah, most of, uh, everything today is pre-finished. Yeah. And most of the cabs we're doing are white and blue or gray, some t- form of mix. Because everybody really puts the same cabinets, and they want a little continuity and a little change in the cabinet style. Mm-hmm. So if they can't do the style, then they go to color, which is the island, which is perfect. I believe this is in the first kitchen we've done where it's it, – I think it was like three in that in, – close in your development that we did the islands are blue, bar area blue and a gray. So we did this type of mix because it just gives – a different detail, and then where you pick it up with the the countertop and the backsplash and the lighting. We're going to be putting a lot more lighting in, especially having a bar area on the other side. It's going lighting to be a lot makes more.
0: a huge difference.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah it does. Because she has a two story area where the bar area is going to be, and it's probably about twenty feet in the air. Mm-hmm. So with that, we have to get lighting that's going to have to have enough power to shine down to light that area. Up. So that was one of the questions we're going to be addressing when it, the electrician comes down it. twenty feet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be a good bit of lighting, but it's going to be high-powered enough. You're getting light out of it. Because sometimes when you have these large homes, big cathedral ceilings, the lighting's so bad that if you're doing all this work, I just don't like dark areas. And Courtney, you're the same way. You don't like dark spots, correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't like dark spots. It's one of the things we talked about. And quite honestly, I lived with my kitchen with dark spots for about three years until I had my cousin come in, who's an electrician, and put just, you know, three recessed lights in which was a complete game changer.
0: (laughs) It's hard to believe just a couple of lights that make a big difference in I've got five in my kitchen. They went in when the house was built because I wanted a lot of light in my kitchen.
1: Well, you know what a lot of people, and they always say to me, why do you put so many lights in? And I said, it's not the amount of light. Now we've been doing less because of the LEDs, but the reason why is if you don't have that flow going consistently across, when that light shines... There's going to be dark spots if, if it's too far exactly. of a span in between. Exactly, And you notice the dark spot. Mm-hmm. And at nighttime, especially now, if you go like November through April, most parts of the country in America, that it gets darker at night a lot earlier. So by having that, if you have dark spots, you notice it. Now, if you're putting all this money into a kitchen, why not have that availability of having a well-lit kitchen and then put them on dimmers? So I don't know why people always try to cut corners into that. That's one of the most important keys. If you're buying a product, you got to show it off. Well, if you can't see it, you're not going to be able to show it. it off, no. So that's why no, I'm just...
0: a proponent of a lot of lighting in, the, in a kitchen. Yeah, a lot a of light. Kitchen and, in, you know, a lot of lighting, period. It's, yeah. and LEDs
1: running very minimal electric with the new LEDs today, the new lighting. Uh, Courtney, are we going to be putting task lighting in? We're going to do that also under the cabinets, under cabinet lighting?
2: Yep, that'll mm-hmm. be fun. I mean, one of the things I didn't even talk to Kevin about is I have kids, Ron. I have a seven year old and a nine year old. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty excited about the potential for multiple colors under my cabinet. So I'll have to see if I can. Find some sort of under cabinet task
0: lighting that I can change the colors of. Yeah, that'd
1: be cool. Well, the lights that we're putting in, they're, they're more of the premium lights. So I can change the K, the the amount of light giving off that light itself, uh, to different colors, a little blower, a little warm tones. And you can even do it also. The, they're actually being in the ceiling, but you can pull these down pretty easy and there's an adjustment on them. So it has five adjustments that? for that. Okay. So we don't just get the one plane like you're stuck with it. I like to give homeowners options. So, and it's not a big yeah, deal to slide great. them down. So that's one thing that's already priced in that we always do. We always put the better ones in because it just gives a variety of things that you can do. Maybe in the during holiday season, if you want to change mood lighting, you can change the whole kitchen with all the lights to something a little warmer, yeah, yeah. depending on how you're decorating. So that's, but it gives homeowners options and the new options today with a lot of the product, it, it could be endless. So that's why we decide just to, to to do that. Just in any case that we do. Well,
0: the other thing is too. I mean, with the LEDs today, I've got them all. I've got LEDs everywhere in my house. Okay, finally, in the cathedral ceiling and in the, in the in the family room and everything. The great thing about them is that if you have to, if you have high ones, you don't have to go up and change them for like ten years.
1: Twenty five thousand hours, probably. Twenty five thousand hours is fantastic. Yeah, the bathroom. We're also going to increase the amount of light in that also because all you right now is the vanity lights. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's true, too. That's another thing. I think my kids will be pretty excited about being actually able to see when in the shower.
1: (laughs) I I never knew why builders from the beginning never put some type of light in a shower. Because that's where you really need it the most, in front of the, actually, vanity and
0: um, inside the bath. I do have it. I do have it in the shower. You do have it? I do.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. I I think it's shocking to me that the, the lighting is as poor as it is in there. But I think part of the reason was, you know, whenever they put that house together and they did what they did, they put a fan in that bathroom and, you know, a lot of those fans today have lights in them, but this did not. So I think they just ended up with a whole dead space of no light that no one really thought about.
1: Hmm. Well, you do have a and cool And if light. the
2: homeowner doesn't shower in there, what do they care?
1: Right. <laughs> it's like a backseat to a car. How do the back seats? I, mean, I don't know. I've never been back there.
0: Now, Kevin brings up an interesting point, too, with LEDs. And I'm sure that's what you're going all LED, right? Yes. With LEDs, you don't have to worry too much about the cost. No. You know?
1: No, just uh, put them in and go, and just, they run minimal. Right. Cory why don't we talk about that one light I think we're going to keep <laughs> in the wall in the bathroom. <laughs> so we talked about this on the way over, and we already discussed. So when that addition was put on, they left a window opening. But what they did is they drywalled the back and put some type of fancy glass with a fluorescent cheap light uh, when you walk in for a little bit of ambiance. It looks great if it was built in the 80s, but I'm presuming that it's a definite. We are taking that out.
2: Yes,
0: sir. <laughs> you can. You can send that, that. That's probably worth a lot of money. You can send that to the Smithsonian.
2: I'll tell you. I think I probably could. I, I had a moment there where I said to Kevin, "I don't know. It's a nice stained glass case, Maybe I'll keep it." And Kevin said, "I don't know. Maybe the dumpster." And I thought, "Ah, uh, you're probably right." Yep,
1: <laughs> it, it's going in the dumpster. So you
0: don't see too many of those anymore. Now
1: you know what? It's, it's a great idea for back when they were doing the edition. Yeah, it's something just to to do it up. But I, I don't understand why, if you had it there, just drywall it over and be done with it. But it looked probably great at the time. But we're going to be getting rid of that. So. We're going to modernize the bathroom. We're going to modernize the kitchen. We're going to have you back on, if you don't mind, coming back on to talk about uh, when we're in the progress of uh, what we're doing and uh, see how things are going.
0: Sounds good. What's your ETA
1: on this? Uh, we're starting at the end of the week. And, uh, we're start wh- what's your ETA in ter- terms of yeah, oh. A couple weeks.
0: Yeah, a couple weeks turnaround for a template, and then it's a week template. So you'll be all set for Christmas then or the holidays?
2: This is what I'm told, Ron. Uh, I'm okay. pretty I'm pretty excited. Hold on to that. December twenty Hold seconds are our target and I know a lot of people who Kevin's done work for who've told me that Kevin's word is great when it comes to his timeline. They mean something. So that's
1: great. Yeah, we're going to try our, our best to do it. We're going to make it.
0: No presents for you this year.
1: No, no, I'm not going to get any presents. And no, goff. So, <laughs> no uh, golf. So, because she's a big time golfer. And uh, we never got to go out this year during all that time. But I'm sure we're going to get out next year.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay. Well, yep. Courtney, do come back on. We want to see how this is working out.
2: Okay. All right. Sounds great. Thanks so much. What
3: are the latest scams and shakedowns? let's find out with ron and kevin it's the bad guy
0: bulletin well kev the horror story today is the first edition of what we call the bad guy bulletin to call out scams from contractors it's home improvement contractors and other bad actors who are using the phone, the computer, email, etc., to separate you from your hard-earned money. You and me and everybody who's listening to this. We're doing this in conjunction with the Bucks County PA DA's office, good friends of ours, and the Bucks County Consumer Protection and Weights and Measures. Both those organizations track this stuff all the time, and they're helping us with that. And they will continue to do so, and we're going to do this the third week of every month. So we're asking our listeners to tip us off via email to kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. Contractors and other scams they may be experiencing. Remember, we can't talk about it on Your Valuable Home unless it's been reported to your local police or consumer protection agency. And we never, ever, ever mention names. So Correct. that's kevin at net. if a scam has happened to you and you wanted to report it so it doesn't happen to other people. The first one I've got to report today, these... <laughs> They must have my number. These happen to me. This is about Norton. It's antivirus software. So I got this invoice, X number, 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 number. It looks official, okay? And it came to me via email from somebody who probably doesn't even exist. And it says, dear customer, consequently, your Norton antivirus subscription has expired today. I didn't have a subscription. There will be an automatic renewal shortly with a charge of $521 and 21 cents. What a bargain being applied to your account as per the saved settings, as per whatever that means, as per the saved settings to cancel the subscription, please call us as soon as possible to have your renewal stop. As soon as you call them, bad, th- bad stuff is going to happen. So this has been noted as a scam. By our friends, Yeah. okay? I didn't go anywhere near it. So if you get something from Norton and they're telling you that they're renewing at a cost of 500 or whatever it is, don't go anywhere near it. Now, Kevin's got two others that happened to me and he's going he's gonna to read them both to you. But you notice how they're always happening to you. <laughs> I'm so, just lucky,
1: I guess. I don't know. Well, here's another one I just read, uh, that was written in here with us. It says, hi, customer. Here's your invoice. Please click the open button to open the invoice. You have a one-year maintenance plan that has been successfully completed. Did you complete anything? No, no, no. So if you have any queries, reach out to the helpline number mentioned in the attachment. So if you get anything about... There's always a (laughs) helpline. Well, that's where they get yeah, you
0: absolutely
1: so that's why everything was verified with our guys at the consumer protection weights and measures and the da's office so they both confirmed that these were both of them here and then the other one here's it, another great this is a great one this was so it says the geek squad dear customer thank you for choosing our services we are reaching out to remind you that your computer protection annual subscription has expired and auto renewed today We would like you to thank you for your completion of the maintenance plan. Again, I guess you didn't complete it. Uh, We also have auto-renewed your one-year, charged at $413 against your account.
0: So let's have everybody understand this. If I would have responded to both these things, I'm spending $1,000 for nothing right now.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Plus whatever they're going to get out there. So yeah, so for all of our listeners, again, just contact us here, Kevin, at yourvaluablehome.net. Send it, in. we've got to get this out. We've got to get it out to Walter. Well, I got so a, no,
0: a butte. This happened to me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the grand slam of scams. I'm working to get something done for the show, right? And all of a sudden on my computer, it comes up. This voice comes up. Your computer has been blocked. And it says there was a, lo- a bunch of nonsense on there. And it says to fix this problem, call so-and-so and so forth. So I know I shouldn't call numbers. I never call any of them. But I was steamed because these guys are getting in my way of getting something done now. I just, I had to choose somebody out. So I get this guy on the phones, obviously operating offshore in some boiler room someplace with a lot of other activity in the background. And I say, let me guess who blocked my computer. Could that have been you? (laughs) I said, let me guess how much it's going to cost to get my computer unblocked. He says, well, first we have to get into computer. I said, pal, there's no way you're getting in my computer. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get off the phone. I'm thinking about calling the FBI. Click. He hung up. Yeah. Well, I, now, I actually called him because I, I was steamed. I, I had to unleash on somebody. You ought to listen to the show, You're a Valuable Home. We talked about this. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. You know? I just, just I, it drove me crazy. Okay. So I have since found out that what I want to do is just close out that window. Close out that window. Hi, everybody. It's Frank. You want to close the window, but if you can't close your browser in a normal way, you can open up the task manager. You simply press control, shift, and escape on your keyboard, and then the tab processing. Is that for Macs and Well, Macs, you can just shut the thing off with a Mac. But Mm -hmm. with a PC specifically, open up your task manager, shift, control, escape at the same time, and then hit the X on that to quit out or advised me not to restart my computer or shut down. Well, of, which course, is, of course it advised you w- not to which, do that. Which is the first thing I did. All I right. just, re- <laughs> just restarted my computer. Everything was fine. So I'll tell you, they're out there. And you know what? Technology has facilitated these people and what they do. The geek thing was Best Buy. And they actually had the Best Buy logo nice. on, on there. And the thing that came up on my screen had the Apple logo on there too. That's an infringement of some sort, right? But my advice to these people is learn how to spell. <laughs> because nobody in Best Buy is going to put out something like this with a lot of misspellings and uh, and uh, incorrect grammar in it. We got one more, one more view coming up. One more view coming up. It involves crypto, cryptocurrency. I don't know if you have any and Frank has any. I have some. And some of our listeners probably do have some crypto. In the last week or so, this thing surfaced and we got Matt Pendleton on, who's an expert in crypto, does it himself, spends a lot of time doing it to explain what is happening. Not only here, but uh, I think the guy who's involved in it split to another country too. Didn't he, Matt?
3: Uh, Yeah, that's correct. So what happened? Yeah, so that individual that's on the run uh, is Sam Bankman Freed. The collapse of his crypto empire is... Really, just the latest in a series of crypto bankruptcies that began earlier this year when you saw large lenders like Celsius, BlockFi, and Voyager, and um, hedge fund Three Arrows Capital all going under following the collapse of an algorithmic stablecoin called Terra Luna, to which they all had large exposure. Wow. It was a flawed design for the Terra stablecoin, and it saw it face a price death spiral uh, that destroyed nearly $1 billion in market cap over the course of just a few days. Now, after that happened, Sam Bankman freed. or or SBF, um, as he's often called, was there to attempt to financially bail out these failed crypto companies. And now, following the revelations of the past week or so, we understand maybe why he was so uh, interested in acquiring their assets. So now, SBF, a few months later, finds himself at the center of not only the largest bankruptcy that the crypto industry has ever seen, but also the largest fraud. SBF was the CEO of the third largest centralized crypto exchange in the world. That's FTX. And he also served as the CEO of sister company Alameda Research until earlier this summer when he stepped down. Uh, Alameda Research Uh, trades and does market making Uh, and they also had a large exposure and large losses to that failed Terra Luna project. The ethics of running both an exchange and a trading firm that trades against the exchange's own customers has been called into question for years but this really became a story of outright fraud when it became clear that FTX had lent out its own customers deposits without their knowing and against their own terms and conditions. Oh boy. So here's how that played out. There was a recent report from Coindesk, uh, which provides excellent uh, crypto news, that included a copy of Alameda Research's balance sheet. And to the surprise of most, it contained mostly the FTT token, which is the token that was uh, released by its sister company, FTX. Um, And that token was meant to capture some of the trading fees. But Alameda was using... FTT as collateral to borrow against, and make risky bets on various crypto projects. They were clearly a house of cards kind of waiting to fall. And a few days later, the CEO of the largest exchange in the world, Binance, announced that he would be selling all of his FTT token holdings, and those are worth roughly $2 billion, but he started with a, by selling a chunk of $500 million. As a result, many retail customers began selling their FTT tokens as well. The price began to crash, followed by more selling and lower prices, uh, and on and on. So the collateral value of FTT that was backing these loans that Alameda had taken was falling rapidly, uh, and Alameda was not going to be able to meet the coming margin calls based on what we knew of their balance sheet. The whole time FTX was tweeting to assure customers that everything was okay and they continued to lie up until the bitter end. What was happening was a bank run on the FTX exchange. Yeah. Sounds that was ways, yeah. Yeah, and it, it was instigated by the CEO of its largest competitor, Binance. But eventually, customer withdrawals were suspended because the funds weren't there, and the remaining company assets were frozen. And it was revealed by various news outlets that FTX was actually in the hole between 8 and $10 billion. Oh. <laughs>
0: Um, And a lot of that was somebody else's money, right?
3: It was. It was their customer's money. Oh, my gosh. And it was also revealed that SBF had built back doors into his uh, company FTX's own accounting software so that internal and external auditors wouldn't be notified of the loans outgoing to Alameda. And just when you thought the story couldn't get any weirder, this past Saturday morning, FTX was hacked by a party that is yet to be identified And they drained the remaining roughly $600 million of funds that were frozen uh, that customers would hope to recover through future bankruptcy proceedings.
0: Oh, my goodness gracious. This is a mess.
3: This is one of the most complicated bankruptcies that we may have ever seen. And this is going to take years to work through. FTX has hired a former lawyer from Enron to help with the process.
0: Well, he certainly has the experience, doesn't he?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't think of a better fit for the job. Exactly.
0: Oh my God. Uh, Here's a selfish question. I don't have a lot of crypto. I got some and and I'm sure a lot of listeners out there have some and the, the sum is going to vary. What does this do to the crypto market overall to Ethereum to some of the really good jet players out there? What does it do to it?
3: There is certainly risk of contagion. There were also other firms and funds that had loaned money to Alameda, that had various relationships with, with FTX or some other ventures that it had invested in. So there is going to be Uh, Some sell pressure in the market, but I think in the end, this isn't the end for crypto. Uh, It's really quite the opposite. These are the kind of events that are going to force people like the SEC and the CFTC to finally put regulation in place, and that regulation will be the catalyst leading to the like true institutional adoption of the technology. So while it's certainly a black eye, it's really a black eye on centralized finance. The decentralized aspects and the technological aspects of blockchain really worked flawlessly throughout all of this. And this past Saturday morning, uh, as the hacker was draining $600 million in funds, I could watch him live on the blockchain, try to launder those and and move those around. So the decentralized aspects of crypto performed great. And this is perhaps the, the biggest advertisement for it all that we could expect to see.
0: Can they get that guy? Can they zoom in on who he is?
3: I think so. You know, it really it looks like this hacker to have access to all of the information that he would have needed to pull this off was likely an insider.
0: Okay, so he's got a head. He's got a big headache coming his way, right?
3: Yes. uh, Particularly if they are able to trace this hack back to someone in the organization, this is the kind of thing that could lead the life in prison. Hmm. And Uh, and there's
0: probably choice. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so at the end of this, you have SPF. He's on the run. His personal net worth has gone from $16 billion or so to negative uh, in just a few days. There's $10 billion that are owed to customers that they may or may not ever see. And his relationship with politicians and regulators uh, and uh, politicians that he has helped to fund their campaigns is really being called into question.
0: Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. Well, to put my mind at ease and everybody else's mind, if they've got, if they're playing with crypto or have a little bit of crypto or even a lot of bit of crypto is don't panic, right?
3: No, there's no reason to panic, but there's a couple things that you should be thinking about. One of the big lessons here is the importance of self-custody. People that uh, hold their own private keys and are controlling their own crypto uh, through a a self-hosted wallet don't have the kind of issues and don't need to place trust in centralized entities um, like FTX. Mm -hmm. So especially for those that have a lot of crypto, I think you really need to examine what trust relationships you might have and if you're comfortable with the with some of the assumptions that you have to make there. Okay.
0: So it's, it's, it's reevaluate and, and maybe make some adjustments, but don't panic.
3: No, absolutely not. Um, you know, you know, likely the things that, that fix the, the holes in the system that were made so clear by this whole event are going to be blockchain technologies. Mm-hmm. It's the solution, not the problem. It's the solution.
0: Okay. Wow. You that opened my big, eyes up. <laughs> that was
3: a big. <laughs> you scam. got my
0: attention and I hope you uh, got the attention of other people out there who are into crypto, but there's no need to panic. Correct?
3: Absolutely not.
0: Uh, we appreciate it. And that sort of wraps bulletin. first edition of the bad guy bulletin for now. All right, We'll be back after we take a quick break. Our sponsor, Provia, takes great pride in combining their state-of-the-art technology with old-world craftsmanship to deliver superior products for the exterior of any home. Personalized
1: care on every order. So true and so apparent with their newest product, metal panels that have the texture and look of cedar shakes or slate. They come in four colors per style.
0: Their shakes and slate can give any home sort of a rich look. And now you can get that look in Provia metal panels. That's news. That's big
1: news. Provia stand panel metal roofing is manufactured with 20-gauge recycled steel built to withstand 100 100- 180 mile per hour winds and cover their Provia way with a limited lifetime warranty.
0: In other words, Provia metal roofing is one and done, right, Kev? It's the last roof you'll ever need.
1: You got it. I love Provia doors, windows, siding, stone, and now metal roofing that doesn't have that industrial look. Provia makes everything it takes for that perfect home exterior, and they're always in tune with the trends and choices, profiles, colors, and finishes that homeowners love and make contractors like me look
0: good. Learn more about Provia metal panels. Go to Provia.com, click the product tab, then roofing. That's Provia then product, then roofing.
1: All right, Ron, energy has always been a hot topic. We've got a great featured segment
0: coming up. What do we have? we got a very, very interesting energy segment here. As you recall, on September 16th of this year, 2022, we had an attorney, environmentalist, and frequent contributor to Your Valuable Home, on and he scored the various elements of the recently passed infrastructure law in terms of how many americans they each package of these things would benefit so five being the greatest number one being the least then on september 29 we received an email from a valued regular listener of your valuable home barry hannon is coo of tgh industrial energy service based in texas barry challenged some of the thinking on evs in his email some of the thinking on evs EVs that came out of that September 16th interview. Correct. In particular, he focused on the environmental issues inherent in production and the eventual disposal of EV batteries, something that most people probably wouldn't think about, okay? Barry's back today with Chris Toomey, his partner and president in TGH Industrial Energy Services, and they're going to expand on Barry's email to further our understanding of Two alternate forms of energy for powering everything but cars, wind and solar. So they are going to be talking about EV batteries, and they are going to be talking about wind and solar, too. And both Barry and Chris were uh, senior managers at Exelon Generation, one of the country's largest energy suppliers, before founding TGH Industrial Energy Service. Barry and Chris, first, thank you for being listeners of your valuable home. We really appreciate that and for joining us today to offer your insights. We appreciate that as well. Barry, can you recap for us the essence of the comments you made in your email?
5: Sure, no problem, guys. Uh, nice to join you here. Uh, Great to have you. Uh, during that segment, uh, September 16th, you know, uh, a couple of those, those items that you guys were talking about kind of perked my ears. A- and one was being the grid upgrade for $65 billion. The second was the seven, $7.5 billion for the EV charging stations. You know, uh, you guys went back and forth a little bit on you know how the charging stations were going to be powered. You know, through Pico uh-huh. and and the the solar farms. I you know it was it was brought up that, that solar farms are, are producing a, a large amount of power for uh, for Pico. So I did a little exercise. Pico being
0: um, Pico being the uh, the part of Exelon that serves the Philadelphia area, correct?
5: Yeah, that 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 serves the PGA market, um, mm-hmm. the Philadelphia area. That is correct. So, in going through that exercise, you know, I, I again my ears just just perked up on you know how what generation is provided P- to Pico, and uh, you know the infrastructure for the EVs. You know, I, I kind of challenge that as well. in going back and forth, so you know, I agree with with the concept um, of the electric vehicles. You know, um, you know, but I, I want people to understand. That there's a net effect to this, right? And that's that's pre and post lifespans of the EVs, right? There's a there's a lot of uh, EPA concerns regarding the production uh, of the electric car batteries. Okay, and also, what are we going to do with with the batteries once once the, they're at their end of the lifespan?
0: Now we're going to be talking about that later on in the interview. So yeah, uh, why don't you get into the uh, the the, um, the details of that?
5: Yeah, so, I mean, it, for, for post uh, a pretty current, uh, production of the EVs, I mean, there's a lot of a, a lot of earth that, that needs to be moved. Right, guys. So, you know, in just simple, you know, uh, simple details. You know, there's about 500,000 cubic yards of, of ore that's uh, refined for 25 pounds of lithium. Right. During that time, you need about 900 to 1000 gallons of fuel. Um, to move that that lithium, 75 semi loads of acid a day, and this is just for one EV, you know, car battery, right? To, to produce that, you need 25 pounds of lithium, 60 pounds of, of nickel, um, 400 pounds of aluminum and steel, 200 pounds of copper, right? So there's a lot of earthwork that needs to be done in order to produce just one battery.
0: It's right? like the EVs, the EVs really. Uh... They're, they're powered by a, a series of batteries aren't they good old batteries little lithium batteries that, that act in yep. series yes sir so yes, it's sir. all those batteries and that EV is what is what takes all that earth to be moved
5: that is correct Wow and, and you know I, I mean just just going you know through that that one example of and that's just a test one Tesla battery you know with those pounds per material you know there's a lot of earth that needs to be moved
1: and what are again, the machines that are digging? For that, what what how are they doing that? Is there machines that are doing that? Big machines. That's all.
5: That's all machines doing that. And you know? how are they powered? Uh, they're all powered by gas. Okay. I, and again, you know, we just have to we have to think of those, you know, the, those consequences that you know in regards to that. And again, I just want to point out that during you know during their time on the road, yes, they are environmental environmentally friendly, but you know during pre and and post lifespan, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, environmental impacts.
0: And then um, by by are. virtue of extension here, the more EVs that go on the road, the more the environmental impact of making those batteries. Correct.
1: That is correct.
0: Something to think yeah, about. Yeah. Something to think
1: about. Yeah. We, we talked about just to get to that point. Now the post, cause that's one thing I like to jump into is the, uh, the post issue. What are we talking about for disposal of those batteries and how long do they yeah, last? So, well, we, yeah, got, so we the, got those questions yeah.
0: coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: So, so we'll get into that, I guess. Um, but, you know, j- just to, to go through my my points here before, you know, we were talking about the EV charging stations and that 7.5, you know, and, and that's that's good for, you know, economically for the country, you know, for, uh, you know, job creations, et cetera. But what, how are these EV stations going to be powered in the future? That's the question that, that arises, you know, on a daily basis in my industry. You know, how are we going to power these? Is it going to be fossil fuel? Is it going to be wind? Is it going to be solar? And if it's wind or solar, I mean, we'll get into that later, I guess. Yeah. Um, but if it's wind and solar, we, we, we just can't sustain it.
0: Moving that earth, too. You're talking about making batteries with what are called rare earths, right? That is correct. Okay. So essentially, mining the rare earths required to make EV batteries is an environmental issue, which gets compounded over time the more EVs go on the road. And everyone is still scratching their head about how to dispose of the spent batteries in an environmental friendly way. How? What's your best guess as how that's going to happen?
5: So, I mean, that's a very, very good question, and, and probably should be answered by somebody a lot smarter than I am. But my initial, you know, gut reaction is that we're going to have to develop, you know, asset recovery and disassembly facilities in order to truly recycle or dispose of these batteries correctly. I'm thinking of my children and my grandchildren, you know, 30, 50 years from now, stating that you know we made a mess of things because yeah. you know the landfills and and you know newly developed areas of disposal of just these batteries, solar panels, and, you know, the blades from the wind turbines, you know, so we have to think about this and, and whether and, and develop an asset recovery or disassembly facilities in order to actually um, dispose of those.
0: That makes sense. And you know what? You got more costs there too, right?
5: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Is the cost of rare earth mining one of the major factors? Because EVV, EVs, I've, I've looked at it, have checked them out. It's not... They're not in my future, but they're expensive. I mean, some of them go into the stratosphere. Is the cost of the rare earth mining driving up the cost of the EVs?
5: It's almost like a four-part effect there, right? And that's, you know, you're, you're correct And that the cost is also goes back for research and development, you know, recouping those funds. But the EVs, I mean, you have to look at the mining, right? The mining, the supply chain, logistics, and, and where the components are made. I mean, all this technology you know, on top of, you know, all the, the rare earth that, that's being moved, you know, is, is very expensive.
0: I would imagine it is, yeah. Where do rare earths for the EVs come from?
5: The rare earth essentially comes from China. China, Vietnam, Brazil are the top three um, producers and have the top three reserves um, for, you know, the, the rare earth uh, materials, right? The U.S. is, is seventh, you know, with 1.5 million tons of reserves. Compared to China's 44 million tons, so it it, it's all overseas, and that goes back to my original point about about the supply chain and logistics. I mean, supply chain, China controls 80% of the world's rare earth, you know, mining refineries, right? 75, 77% of the world's cell capacity, and 60% of the world's component manufacturing. So when you when 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 you compound all that, you know, put it all together. You know, we, we have we have a struggle here in the U.S., you, you know, and, and getting our getting all this from overseas to the U.S. So that goes back to the logistics. West Coast has seen an increase from from imports, you know, ships anchored off the coast, off the West Coast in the Pacific Ocean, you know, with long durations of waiting to unload because they just don't have the manpower or the ports uh, for all, you know, for
0: all the needs. So basically what you're saying here, I mean, if you parse this. U.S. has 1.5 million tons of rare earths at their disposal, and I mean, if EVs prolifer- proliferate, not only here but in Europe. In Europe they're, I mean, Europe—they're—I was in Europe two years ago, and they're all over Amsterdam. They're all over Oslo, Norway. They're—I mean, taxicabs have to be EVs in certain countries now. Okay, so the Chinese probably have us—you know—by the short hairs. <laughs> because they control the whole thing, right? So if they want to push the price up of the rare earths, the price of EVs is going to go sky high. Not only here but around the world, correct?
5: No, that that's absolutely correct. And then we also have to look at, at where the electrical components are made here, guys. I mean, that's that's a big, you know, a big line in the sand, right? And that majority of the manufacturers, you know, the EV manufacturers, they're relying on Taiwan for all of their EV component productions, right? I mean, that's Tesla, that's uh, Volkswagen, you know, some of the big manufacturers, I mean, they're relying heavily uh, on the Taiwanese and, and the produ- production facilities. So, uh, again, that goes back to supply chain and, and to log- logistics. So, it's it's compounding here. I mean, you see you see where I'm going with that.
0: I see where you're going with this. This is a scary prop- uh, uh, proposition. <laughs> wow. And then you get into the other issue here. How long will EV batteries last? Typical EV. Say te- Tesla, yeah. which is the… Yeah. Yeah, so the example,
5: let's say the first generation of EV batteries are starting to come to their, the end of the lifespan, right? Typically the last, you know, eight to 10 years up to possibly 15, but after eight years, they start to, they start to lose their, their full charge capability, almost like a, a cell phone battery, if you will. Right. After a year yeah. or two, you know, you need to plug it in more often. Right. So, you know, eight to 10 years is, is what, you know, statistics are reporting right now.
0: Can you replace them? Number one, and what is the cost to replace them? Number two, and number three, if there's an advance in EV batteries of any sort whatsoever, will the first and second generation EVs be able to accept the advanced battery, or do we have a problem there? How does that all, how does that puzzle fit together?
5: So, I mean, that remains to be seen. I mean, but uh, again, my my initial thought here is that you, you know. Uh, as as batteries start to you know come up to new generations, right, that the technology within it, the EVs are so sophisticated that there's going to be you know new upgrades or or updates to that technology that will accept these new batteries, right? I mean, that's that's what I first state. similar to this to the cell phone analogy I was using. you know, and then you know to replace a, a battery, it's anywhere between three thousand, and 5,000 for your typical everyday EV, but it could go up to about 20,000 to replace your battery. Wow. Right? So, wow. And, and the lifespan of a of one of the EV cars as of right now is about 10 to 20 years, right? So you may be able to u- utilize that vehicle for the full 20 year lifespan of that and replace your battery once, maybe twice, you know, for three to 10, you know, three to five, three to $10,000, depending on, on the vehicle, right? But to dispose it or to recycle that battery, right? Right now, the average cost is about six thousand seven hundred fifty dollars, right? So, say it's between you know sixty-five and seven thousand dollars, right? So, if you can purchase a battery for three thousand or five thousand, right? What's this? What, what what's the incentive to recycle it, right? Or you're just going to throw it in the, in, in, into the trash, right? So, you know, there, there's things that need to be contemplated there.
0: Hmm. A spent EV battery, is there anything in it that would be worth recycling?
5: No, I, I don't believe so. I mean, some of the aluminum that you take out of that, yes, maybe, but just to draw the, the materials out of that um, successfully, you know, in, in order for it to be recycled is really the, the EPA component and the, the concern, right? Because what are you going to do with if you just put these into a landfill, right? Next thing you know, the batteries—you know—they're they're seeping all of this into, you know, into the stormwater, into
0: groundwater. You know, yeah,
5: that's right. Right. So that's that then. That becomes a watershed EPA aspect,
0: right? Uh, and all the problems—the two problems you're talking about here: number one, the rare earth situation, and number two, the disposal situation—are problems that are going to rise sooner rather than later, right? They could start arising tomorrow.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, uh, out in California right now, there's, you know, there, there, there's a big push for not only the EV batteries, but also for the solar panels, right? And how to recycle and or dispose of, um, because, you know, the solar panels out in California, that that was the big push, you know, 20 years ago. Um, now the first panels are coming up to the end of the lifespan. So there's a big push on, on making sure that these are disposed of properly and or recycled properly. Again, it comes down to cost. You know, and and we're just not there yet. So, you know, there has to be a lot of R&D and there has to be a big push. And that's really where the money should be spent on. Right. Instead of and I think we'll get into this later, instead of tax credits or subsidies, you know, for for big corporations, for, um, you know, these green energy productions um, or to 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 purchase and and drive in uh, an electric vehicle. You know, we should be spending that money on, you know, on the uh, disposal and recycling efforts in order to to truly capture this from start to finish.
0: Yeah, if nobody's thinking about that right now, I mean, it's going to that's, a, pro- that's a problem. That's a problem. I think we can we can all agree though that EV batteries have to evolve somehow, right? In a good way. Oh.
5: Yep, absolutely agree. okay
0: will they get safer for example today's lithium car batteries um, we just had this example down in Florida with the uh salt with, water uh, yeah salt water they start they they go they start start on fire I've also heard of ex- situations where they can explode
5: yeah no you're absolutely right and you know you, the, your example regarding the salt water you know due to the hurricanes down in Florida is a, is a perfect example but also you know on let's say on uh, on airplanes, you know, plugging in, you, you know, uh, a Samsung phone, you know, when they were having their issues, right? So they absolutely can't catch fire. And, you know, they, they, will, they will get better as time goes on. That's one of the known unknowns right now. So, I mean, you're 100% correct. And I think manufacturers are taking that into consideration for the EVs. And they're most likely going to implement some sort of fire protection within these vehicles.
0: They're going to have to. I mean, there's a yeah. um, uh, I know of a, a, a parking lot in. It's an indoor parking lot in Princeton. They said no EVs. They won't let them in because if one if something happens in there and one explodes or catches fire, you got a major problem. Reminds me of the hits. old
1: Ford Pinto. Remember that when they uh, you hit the back of that, it, they caught on fire. It'll yeah, probably with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, that I guess was because a gas tank. Yeah, that was Pinto, too close yeah. to the area. Yeah. Though, but I'm sure nobody wants a car exploding. You know? No, safety is still one of the not. biggest features. That, that we would be. A, to look that at. would
0: ruin your day for sure. So um, let's switch gears for a se- uh, for for more than a second here to emerging forms of of energy solar wind. I know um Chris had a, a major point of view on this. Chris is, you want to add anything to what Barry has already explained?
4: As far as uh, as far as the uh the EVs and the batteries and the environmental impacts I, I think Barry's pretty well covered it. I mean yeah. we could get I mean we could get into some really really uh heavy detail that, you know, the general public just isn't aware of, you know, but um, at the same time, I don't want to take up all your times and have get into a large physics meeting um, and, and, uh, you know, a a chemical study. So, uh, but no, I I think that my only point here that I could add is that, you know, what we say in the industry of power generation is, you know, you plan to work, work the plan, And I think what we've done here as a society is we put the horse way before the cart, you know? And what I mean by that is we do not have the infrastructure to facilitate this current path going forward. We should have, there should have been a plan laid out with this rolled out in such a way that, um, you know, that we could facilitate, you know, the EVs much better as far as in operation. Now, as far as pre and post, That's yet to be determined. I mean, that's that that that's a much deeper issue that I think that it it really needs to be discussed and and laid out, you know, because I think that um, I think that too many people that make decisions don't understand the total implications which actually happen, Um, you know, how it can affect things environmentally, uh, socially, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Well, the other the other factor here is, I mean, Chris. Pointed out that uh, EV battery pr- replacement would cost three to twenty thousand dollars, depending upon the car, right? But if the Chinese want to play hardball, and they own mo- uh, they, or they have most of the rare earths that go into batteries, they you can could make it fifty thousand. It could make it fifty thousand dollars, right?
4: You know, and that's the other thing too is you know, right now, guys, we all grew up in an atmosphere where you know we bought a, a vehicle for a certain percentage and you know, of course, your vehicles are going to, you know, uh, depreciate, but you get to a point where you'll always get some value out of that vehicle for the fact that it is what it is, right? I mean, it's a, it's a vehicle, it's a proven entity, right? I think that what you may see is that you may have a public that is going to own an asset, which they will find, I've, it's cheaper to go buy a new one than it is to facilitate the upgrades that i have to do on this one in regards to hey i need a new battery and what it's going to do to the auto market as far as trade-in values, absolutely
0: trade-in values that go right through the floor
4: exactly i mean everybody you, you may find people you know for lack of a better expression you know they own two vehicles they can't get rid of so they got they, they end up going back to combustion because they got sick of you know one their batteries are exhausted they don't can't afford it but you know, they can't find an EV station unless it's in their driveway within 200 miles from them because the infrastructure is not there to support the facilitation of EVs at this time.
0: Wow. Okay. A lot to think about here. And, you know, I just want to let all our listeners know we are not trying to destroy the EV market. We're right. trying to further a, a more acute understanding of what this is all about. Okay. So, But let's switch gears now and and uh, and go to the emerging forms of energy. It's solar and wind. I know both of you guys have a very definite point of view on this. Uh, who wants to lead this? What happens outside the U.S. in terms of energy production will definitely impact the global environment, right? So what is happening outside the U.S. Well, in terms of energy production?
4: Barry, I've been discussing this, and, you know, this is something that kind of it, it, it hits home to me. I've been in the power industry now for 34 years, you know, I've watched the United States grow and go from, you know, uh, coal. And when we went, you know, from there, we were utilizing, you know, hydro plants, and as well as we got into natural gas and so forth. But right now, you're in a situation where we are impacting our grid. Okay, um, we are providing ourselves with less and less options to support the daily base load of the U.S. grid. And the reason for that is because of, per se, the war on coal. Just to give you an idea, okay? Right now, currently operating in the United States is 240 coal units, and that's only when when dispatched, okay? That number is down from 565 over the last 10 years, okay? So we've literally cut our coal operations in half all because of climate change, emissions control and so forth. With that being said, okay, currently right now, this very, very moment, okay, you have 120 gigawatts, that's 120,000 megawatts under construction in the country of China. China has 1,120 operating facilities and they're gonna add another 120 facilities to that all by the end of 2026. Wow. Okay. That's now, right around the corner. Exactly. India India has 285 facilities operating, but they're they're actually under construction right now. They have 10 that are going to actually come online in the next 8 months or next 18 months, and they have another 53 behind that all to be online before 2030, okay? That's 63,000 megawatts. Basically, if you break that down, by a thousand you know coal units usually go in thousand thousand megawatt increments when you're dealing with you know large loads so that's 63 power plants you know uh china right that's 121 power plants right between the two they've exceeded or about to exceed the actual plants that are in online in the united states so with that being said you know you know i mean i could go on i mean i've got every country in the world listed in front of me right now but i'm just using the these top two um because here in the united states you know we're trying to get away from coal because of per se climate change but in the meantime you know india china uh indonesia russia germany they're, and I say Germany because Germany just brought back two of their largest facilities and put them back online because they ran into where wind will not sustain their electrical load. Hmm. Okay, They, you know, so, and also that has an impact with their natural gas market with the Ukraine policy and uh, war and whatnot. And so with that being said, the United States cannot burden the entire uh, climate change war by itself. Number one, number two, you know, you you look at that and you're like, wow, you know, look at the impact we're putting on ourselves economically. And it's like, are we trying to prove a point? You know, what's, what's the final goal here? Because if you can't get everybody in the kitchen to make the same stew, it's not going to taste very good at the end.
0: Yeah. I see. I see what you're saying here. um, And, and, and some of these, some of these actors in here, China, India, Uh, The Soviet Union, uh, Indonesia, they're going to be really tough to convince to come around to, uh, you know, saving the environment. Uh, They probably couldn't care less, some of them.
4: Exactly. You know, if they're not on board, what are we doing, right? And that same argument being made right now, we have a a total as of last month, okay? Our numbers on an average as of last month is – 49 million tons of coal being exported out of the United States that's going to India China Japan Netherlands South Korea and Russia
0: so we're exporting 40- 49, 49 is that is that per year per annum that, that that's per year yes to the countries okay. who were burning coal
4: <laughs> they're burning coal so you have to ask what's really going on here right? You know, and, and then the flip side of that is like, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to take a hold of, you know, renewable energies as we are, right? So, you know, let's look at wind, for instance. You know, one wind farm, right? You know, you're looking at, depending on the design that you implement, but every megawatt is four, four acres to 40 acres, right? So, if I have a hundred megawatt wind farm. Mm-hmm. That's that's a 400-acre footprint or a 4,000-acre footprint, okay? And that's also, you know, that's also for a facility that is under 50% uh, efficiency when, you know, when the wind blows. Now, that when the wind blows is a very, very, very big part of the equation because that's the one thing we can't do. You know, we... You know, we're talking about, hey, you know, earth temperature is going to rise, you know, and and by two degrees and, you know, in the next 250 years. But we can't tell exactly when a hurricane is going to hit on what day and what hour and what part of the beach it's going to take out. Right. With that being said, we still can't we you can't tell me and you can't tell anybody at a dispatch desk that the wind is going to blow at exactly nine o'clock. That's going to provide so many megawatts for so many hours. Okay so you know wind is there when the wind blows but you cannot you cannot predict you can try to plan you may have a projection but you know when you're dealing with uh, utilities on a baseload standpoint that's a constant you cannot deal with a variable when you're trying to ensure the solidification of your baseload within the united states so when the wind does blow okay hey you know, per our new regulations between NERC and FERC, all your power plants now have to make room because you're, you know, it's like a large system. You got to think of volts as pressure, right? So there's too much pressure. We got to bring the pressure down to make room for all this extra pressure that we're dumping into the grid, which is the wind. The problem with that is that every power plant ever created by man, okay, is designed to operate at base load 100%, okay? At 100% load, at base load, that is your most, your greatest performance, your greatest efficiency, and that is your leanest portion of emissions being, uh, de- uh, being put into the atmosphere, if you will. Now, define pa- define
0: base load, if you will, because sure, a lot of people ba- don't ba- have a grip on that.
4: Base load is the the, re- the required megawatts online to ensure. Basically, that you know, one that the lights are on, right? You have a base load that is different at seven o'clock in the morning than you do at two o'clock in the afternoon, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a different base load at um, three o'clock in the morning than you do at any time, right? Lights are off, you know, TVs are off. There's not a lot happening unless you're in an industrial state, you know, and you start seeing the megawatts creep up early in the morning because, hey, what's everybody doing? They're getting up. You know, TVs on, ceiling fans on. They're making their coffee, hit the microwave for a snack to, on their way to the on, way to the shop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so. But your, your base load itself is it it fluctuates during the day, but it's projected. They know exactly. Let's just take ERCOT for instance. ERCOT has a mini base load increase between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning. The next one actually hits around one o'clock in the afternoon till about. Uh, right about 2 to 2.30. From 2.30 to 5 in the summertime, it's, man, I mean, you'll, you'll see even another increase in base load. Why? You know, hey, it's hot out in Texas, right? You know, that's your air conditioners coming on, your Everybody's highest to, production yeah. of, mm-hmm. of of all your facilities and in regards to electrical capacity. So with that being said, you know, you you have you have a base load that has to be maintained, and I, that's like maintained meaning I, I can flip a switch, I can turn a dial, and I've got power, right? Mm-hmm. All I've got to do is I've got to bring these power plants up, or I've got to bring them down based on what my current load is. I can't do that with renewables. I, I can't go over and flip a switch at two o'clock in the afternoon and expect, hey, I'm going to get I'm going to get all this wind power. If the wind's not there, I'm not getting anything.
1: Well, Chris, on top of that, just thinking, just not to interrupt you, but if everybody gets an EV and we say like 25 million cars get sip- shipped out and just say tomorrow, that, they're mostly charging them at night. They're not charging them during the day, they're charging them at night when they're at their house. Now, how's that load also taken upon to try to get to that base load if people are now, when you're at a minimal uh, electrical use at that point, to accommodate for all these new cars at night if we get it, say, in the next five years? How's that going to nope. work out?
4: That's uh, you know there's and that's, that's another that's another great point because you know when you think about um, when you think about wind right or you think about solar of course solar you know you're you're not getting anything from a solar basis at night you know wind's not yeah, zero at, at the wind yeah excuse me
0: zero at night
4: yeah oh I, um and then uh you know of course wind you know if it blows you know you're gonna you're gonna get it somewhat out of that but I think that what we're gonna find and this is my personal opinion, is that I think if you can do an accumulation between wind and solar itself, that you are actually able to charge large battery fields, right, that I think your battery fields would end up becoming a very big play to the grid, you know, during during the evening, during the later parts of the night, where, you know, like you said, you a lot of, a lot of the charging is gonna be happening at night. The sure. problem with that is that you gotta remember there's, you know, when you think about power, there's the power plant. From the power plant, there's the transmission. And from the pa- transmission, there's the substations and there's the substations. Now you know, you're all the way down to, you know, now you're down to, you know, residential services. Okay. You're talking about an upgrade of the just almost about 80% of the electrical grid itself. Because we, um, I think Barry has a number, I think there's a total of 161,000 Gas stations in the United States, right? And out of that, I think there's only six thousand charging stations in the U.S., right? So, you know, with that being said, you know, we we've, we've got a long way to go to facilitate, you know, um, the EVs, if you will, right? Um, and you know, and hey, listen, I'm I'm not totally against them. I, I, I think that there's applications that they could be used for. I think that especially in inner cities, larger inner cities where, you know, you have millions of people, you know, in regards to, let's say, uh, you know, L.A. and New York, Chicago, where you heavy traffic areas around D.C. I mean, I think they'd be great assets. And why is because everything is condensed. It's right there. Right. You know, as far as from a rural standpoint, you know, I, I don't I don't see you using this stuff on a farm. You know, I don't see heavy equipment um, being able to sustain, being sustained by battery power, um, nor, you know, trucks on a pipeline, you know, with welding machines and so forth or backhaul equipment.
0: What you just mentioned, inner cities, is exactly what I've observed in a couple areas in, uh, in Europe. Uh, all taxi cabs are going to have to be EVs in uh, Amsterdam, I think it's this year. And I was in Oslo at the same time, and everything in the center of Oslo Nobody can drive a private uh, fossil fuel powered car in the center of Oslo, which is a pretty pretty big area. Uh, it only only um, the only gas powered vehicles are delivery trucks and things like that, or emergency vehicles. Everybody else has to be EV. So that what what you're talking about there is actually happening in Europe right now.
5: Yeah, but that's... Uh- can I just jump in here guys so that goes back to the economic impact right and that we were talking about and why germany let's say germany and, and other and other countries surrounding it are going back to coal-fired power plants right because there was such there's such a mandate on you know green technology green energy right and the evs that it, it almost it, it basically locked up their grid right so they have to go to alternative measures the old measures of coal-fired power plants in order to sustain, you know, the the base load and the demands of, you know, plugging in and and the mandates of plugging in all their vehicles at the same time.
0: Yeah. I understand. I understand now why, why that is difficult with solar or wind, you know, because wind in particular is not that reliable.
4: well, Well, let me throw another spin on this because we're talking about environmental impacts and so forth. And here we are, you know, I, um, Barry and I—he I, knows how I feel about some of the stuff. I call it the green drum. So, you know, when we're when we're beating that green drum, you know, and hey, we've got—let's just say in West Texas, we've 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 got 15,000 megawatts of wind energy online right now. Well, the the fossil fuels that are online, to they they have to stay online. They can't come offline because wind can stop blowing at any time, and then all right. of a sudden you're going to go black, right? right? So. So they're online, but they're not aligned at full percent. They're only aligned about, you know, 80 to 85%. So what's happening, right? Remember what I told you about power plants being designed at 100% base load? Right. And um, okay, that is their most efficient operating range. That is also their cleanest, that is their cleanest emission discharge is at that level at 100%. Now, when you take them and go to 80, 85% load, emissions go up, right? And this is what nobody understands, Hmm. even though even though they are still in compliance, I'm putting out almost three times as much at a natural gas facility at 80 percent load than I was at 100 percent load. We're so concerned about green power and, oh, look what we're doing for, you know, for our our country, so to speak. Right. But the fact is, is we're you know, we're defeating the purpose because of how we're implementing it, you know, and so. All the, you know, all the emissions that we're looking to save and how we're supposed to be running clean, well, we impacted, you know, we impacted for the betterment. You know, now we've got, we've got fossil fuels that are fossil plants that are actually, you know, running dirtier than, than they were because they had to make room for uh, the insufficiencies of wind, right? Got it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, and 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 also uh, again, environmental impacts. Right? You, you talk about I'm gonna talk about solar just for a second, okay? You know, solar is an average of seven to ten acres per megawatt. Okay. Now, you know, if, if you take a if you take a, a hundred megawatt solar facility, right? I mean, you're, I mean, you're right. You're right at a hundred acres. A hundred acres is a big chunk of ground. So
0: yeah, it's a lot of territory. When
4: you so so when you've got everybody beating their chest about, oh, look what we did, you know, we've got a, a 700 megawatt solar plant out in west wherever in the United States, it's 4,000 acres, 4,000 acres of property, guys.
0: Yeah, we know of a development yeah. in Florida, it's, it's west, uh, would be west of Fort Myers in Florida, pretty innovative development, and um, they're going to build 20,000 homes there, something like that, right, Kev? and they've got a solar farm of 770,000 uh panels that takes up a broad swath of this this property. So I understand what you're saying and it's like where do you get all this space? Where do you where does it come from?
5: Yeah, that was exactly. my, that was my initial my initial reaction is the geographical footprint of of both wind and solar, right? Because it is it is very extensive. Hmm. And, you know, back Chris's point, you know, we're, you know, just to summarize, I mean, uh, from the U.S. perspective, I think we just need to do exactly what Chris was saying, and that's plan the work and then work the plan and not put the cart before the horse.
0: Yeah, I probably agree with you there. I mean, this has been very, very, we got it. We have to wrap it. I just have one, one more question for you. Are there any other viable sources of, of power for energy production? Are they out there? Is somebody working on that?
4: Well, I you know I, I gotta throw a spin on this, guys, because I started my career in waste energy. I I've I've always had I've always had a soft spot for waste energy because, as much as the coal units actually got pounded in regards to emissions, which we did a lot of good stuff before the war on coal started. But if you go back all the way back into the late '80s and early '90s, when you know uh, when you're just let me tell this here for you for a second here if i've got if i've got a a a landfill that's taken you know a thousand tons of a day of material and i install a waste energy plant well now that the reduction in volume is by like 90 percent well now i only have 10 tons of ash going to the landfill now i just expanded its life expectancy by 10 times that's number one number two Hmm. On the flip side, the the trash that's going to these waste energy plants, it's free power. You know, it, it it's it's free power. And what what was the biggest impact is that we could not get the communities or the governments together to basically ensure that the haulers actually took it to the waste energy plants instead of going to the to the landfills, and that was part of the. Uh, flow control act. in um, in the early nineties, I think it was 93. Right. So, so with that, you know, I- I- if we could ever gain control and push the flow of trash to waste energy facilities and to utilize it as it should be hey keep in mind, Florida has oh, almost 21 operating facilities.
1: Yeah, I was about to uh, say that Florida and, has a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know,
4: um, and then along the East coast, when you get up to Fairfax and, uh, Alexandria, you know uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. There's several of them in the Northeast, and then they get out west. But the the fact remains is that, to me, you you ask the question, and I say I think I think it's an untouched, um, an untouched uh asset that I I think that only reason everybody stays away from it is because of the uh, of the political. Views upon it. I think it'd probably be one of the best things that we could sit there and do uh, for the country and for the communities themselves. You know, if any of you guys have ever sat there and traveled and looked at looked at you know some of the largest cities in the world and walked the streets of Singapore or or Malaysia or um, you know uh, even uh, even Europe and Russia, right? Walk those streets and see how clean and and how neat and and tidy these these large municipalities are, uh, these large Metro areas are, and then come back to the United States and scratch your head.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, all we have to be, is we walk sh- through New York city and do that comparison. Yeah. I so. mean, we, we,
4: we, we, we should be doing so much better. And I think that we have an untouched entity here that, you know, that we really should, you know, why can't we use waste energy to facilitate microgrids that, that power that have a whole entire, you know, a charging farm for certain town for certain towns.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, well, listen, Barry, Chris, you've given us a lot to think about, tremendous amount to think about here and everybody should think about it too, but we got to leave it there. We got to go. This has been uh, a huge education for me and I kept shaking his head too. And, I'm sure for everybody is listening to this. So thank you very, very much. Thank you again for being listeners of uh, Your Valuable Home. And I'm so glad that you wrote your letter, Barry, and we got this ball rolling.
5: Oh, I appreciate
0: it, guys. All right. Hey,
4: we appreciate it being
0: on anytime, guys. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years zero monthly payments, how do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount, plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details.
1: Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufacturing Stone and metal roofing products made with latest technology and honest old world
0: craftsmanship—the Pervee way. That's this week's podcast. Your valuable home comes to you every week on the New Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcast, and all other popular podcast directories.